Welcome to Pediagogy. I'm Tammy. And I'm Lydia. And we're UC Davis Children's Hospital trained pediatricians in Sacramento. This podcast reviews common conditions in children to enhance our knowledge and the knowledge of other residents, medical students, and any other interested learners. With that, let's delve right into this episode. All right. Hey, everyone. Today, we're joined by our second year UC Davis residents, Katrina and Victoria, who are going to help us go over today's episode. Woot, woot. We are so excited to have them join us. Last time I saw them, they were wee little first years, so I'm super excited to have them share all the knowledge they've learned since then. Hi, everyone. I'm Katrina. I'm a second year peds resident here at UC Davis, and I'm interested in hospital or emergency medicine when I grow up. And I'm Victoria. I'm also a second-year resident at Davis, and I'm leaning towards the PICU after I finish residency. We're both interested in some sort of inpatient medicine, so we're here to talk about the management of septic shock. No matter where in the hospital we wind up, it's going to be an important topic to be familiar with. So that being said, Victoria, you want to start us off with the case? Sure. So let's say you're in the emergency department. A fully immunized five-year-old male with no past medical history comes in with a fever and cough for three days. He has had poor oral intake and recently started kindergarten. His vitals are notable for a fever, a blood pressure of 74 over 40, and tachycardia. On physical exam, he's pale and ill-appearing. His capillary refill is brisk with four-plus radial pulses. He opens his eyes to a voice and is able to follow commands, but will moan with discomfort. His lung sounds are coarse, and you notice decreased breath sounds on the left lower lobe. You get a chest x-ray, which shows a consolidation in the left, middle, and lower lobes. How would you like to proceed? This story sounds classic for a pneumonia with a systemic response, and I'm worried about his blood pressure and altered mental status. We should do fluid resuscitation, but let's talk about that more later. In the meantime, let's start by getting our typical infectious workup labs. So this typically means a complete blood count, comprehensive metabolic panel, procalcitonin, C-reactive protein, sed rate, a urinalysis and culture, blood gas, lactate, and blood cultures. We could also consider sending coagulation studies like INR and D-dimer to evaluate for DIC, but let's see what the first ones look like. Okay, so labs come back and are significant for a leukocytosis with neutrophil predominance and a low bicarbonate. His inflammatory markers are elevated with high CRP, procalcitonin, and a high lactate. His venous blood gas is consistent with the metabolic acidosis. What do you think is going on? Wow, this kid sounds sick. His picture sounds like sepsis secondary to pneumonia. The first thing that stands out are the vital signs. From his fever and tachypnea alone, he meets SIRS criteria. And since we have a known infection, which in this case is the consolidation on chest x-ray, he qualifies as having a source, which means he has sepsis. Also, his labs are notable for a lactic acidosis and leukocytosis. I've always been so confused with SIRS and sepsis and septic shock. Can we talk a little bit about the differences? Same. It's easy to get turned around, so let's talk about it. The constellation of symptoms that hint us towards shock is known as SIRS, Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome. The root problem stems from the fact that the metabolic demands of the body exceed the supply of oxygen, leading from a shift from aerobic to anaerobic metabolism. This causes an increase in lactate production and metabolic acidosis can develop. You said his picture looks like SIRS, but can we review what SIRS actually means? Absolutely. 
So like we said, SIRS stands for Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome, and it comprises two or more of the following findings, a leukocytosis, which our patient has, or leukopenia or a bandemia greater than 10%, fever, so a temp greater than 38 degrees Celsius, or hypothermia, which would be less than 36 degrees Celsius, and tachypnea or heart rate abnormalities greater than the 90th or less than the 10th percentiles for age. Okay, so it sounds like there's some overlap between SIRS and septic shock. How would we be able to differentiate it? Great question. SIRS is an inflammatory response, like we know, but with a suspected or documented infection, like pneumonia in our patient, or a UTI or an acute gastroenteritis in other patients, it then becomes sepsis. Gotcha. So SIRS plus source equals sepsis. Exactly. You got it. But then we have to figure out how to deal with sepsis now. Tammy, want to elaborate more on what severe sepsis is? Yes, I thought you'd never ask. So severe sepsis occurs when sepsis causes organ dysfunction like elevated liver enzymes, acute kidney injury, or altered mental status. In children, this can be pretty nonspecific. Things like lethargy, fussiness, decreased responsiveness, oliguria, or inability to be consoled. Cardiac dysfunction is most evident in the physical exam with poor perfusion or abnormal pulses. Like in our case, the kid had bounding pulses that were four plus. And then you want to think about septic shock when you have hypotension refractory to fluid boluses. Wow, that's a great segue into our next question. How do you manage septic shock when you see it? So shock is a medical emergency. So first and foremost, you want to continually reassess your patient to make sure you're managing this correctly. We have to reassess and gauge the clinical status of our patients with each intervention. As an all-emergency management, you want to start with your ABCs. So that's making sure you have a reliable airway, breathing, and circulation. This usually means establishing continuous monitoring and IV or IO access if you can't get the IV in. How do you go about starting a fluid resuscitation? Great question. So typically we start with 10 to 20 mils per kilo um, for a fluid bolus and you want to choose a balanced fluid. So that means something like lactated ringers or LR as we usually call it or plasma light if you have the nice fancy stuff. Typically we max out at one liter total per bolus, and you give that over 10 to 15 minutes. So you're giving it fast. You can repeat this three times if the patient is persistently hypotensive despite your other boluses, but you got to be careful with giving any more than three because you don't want to wind up with fluid overload. But if they're hypotensive, wouldn't we want to keep pushing fluids? Yeah, you might think that like more fluids, your blood pressure gets higher, but really giving a fluid bolus isn't as benign as you might think. Pediatric patients in particular are at high risk for fluid overload, so really listening and looking for signs of fluid overload is crucial to avoid heart failure or respiratory failure from pulmonary edema or effusions, and these can further complicate your really sick kid's course. Okay, true. That makes sense. And since we're managing septic shock, that means we have an infection source, so we'd want to start antibiotics, right? Yep, that's right. So the newest recommendations are to start broad-spectrum antibiotics, usually ceftriaxone plus or minus vancomycin if you're worried about MRSA, within one hour if shock is present. But if shock is not present, you could wait to give them within three hours while the rest of your evaluation is underway. And for our UC Davis listeners, this is a great time to plug in our EMR PEDS Severe Sepsis Order Set. 
It's really easy to use. It lets you order antibiotics based on age, risk factors, and location of infection. So it's very useful. But if you're not at our institution, have no fear. A lot of hospitals will have similar order sets. And if not, you can talk to your friendly neighborhood EMR to make one. We love a good order set, but since we're not able to look at the EMR right now, can we talk more about the antibiotics that we can choose? For newborns up to 28 days of life, we start with ampicillin and gentamicin. And in regions with a high prevalence of hospital-acquired MRSA, we also add on vancomycin. You can even add acyclovir if you have a high suspicion of HSV. So think about those vesicular lesions or if mom has a history of genital herpes. For patients over 28 days old, it depends on if they're immunocompromised or not. So for those immunocompetent patients, ones who are healthy, no medical problems, you should start with cefotaxime or ceftriaxone, so those third-generation cephalosporins. And then again, you want to add vancomycin if there's a risk for MRSA. For the immunocompromised patients, um, consider your like hemonkers or ones who are particularly at risk for pseudomonas, you'd start with cefepime. Alternatively, you might want to start a carbapenem in settings where ESBL resistance is present, or if your patient has recently received broad-spectrum antibiotics, like a third-gen cephalosporin that I talked about, or a fluoroquinolone. And let me guess, even in our immunocompromised patients, we'd still add vancomycin if we're worried about MRSA? Correct. So that gets us through the initial fluid resuscitation and antibiotics. And I know you said to be careful with more than three boluses. So what do we do if the patient's blood pressure isn't improving? Well, that's when I start freaking out a little bit. So if the patient's blood pressure is refractory at this point, that's when we need to start pressors. But how do we know what pressors to use? Yeah, so our typical go-tos are epinephrine and norepinephrine. Epinephrine or epi has more beta-adrenergic activity at lower doses, but increasing doses leads to more alpha activity. So it's the better of the two at improving cardiac contractility and preferred in patients with suspected myocardial dysfunction. Norepinephrine or norepi is good for increasing systemic vascular resistance due to alpha-1 and 2 receptor activation. Alpha-1 adrenergic activity uh, leads to increased systemic vascular resistance through vasoconstriction, and alpha-2 adrenergic activity inhibits sympathetic activity and can cause hypotension. So for example, clonidine is an alpha-2 adrenergic agonist. We typically start both epi and norepi drips at 0.05 mg per keg per hour and then titrate up from there based on response. Dopamine has also historically been a popular vasoactive in settings of septic shock, but recent literature has shown that epi and norepi have better results. Milrinone and dobutamine can also be used in high systemic vascular resistance situations and poor cardiac output scenarios due to properties of increased inotropy and decrease in systemic vascular resistance. What if this child has had a past medical history of congenital heart disease? As with anyone with a history of cardiac dysfunction, we'd want to fluid restrict or give smaller boluses. Usually you start with 10 mils per kilo. And then as always, you want to continually reassess their response. I know reassessment is really important, especially in kids in the PICU, but in this case, what should we be looking for? Yeah, so I usually do serial examinations and I look for things like hepatomegaly. I'll also look for things like increased central venous pressure or cardiomegaly in chest x-ray, as well as new crackles on leg exam. So really pretty much anything that indicates fluid overload. You could also consider obtaining things like BNP or brain natriuretic peptide, EKG, and an echocardiogram for heart dysfunction. 
Okay, so we've tried giving fluids and broadening our antibiotics, and we're still not making much progress, and I'm really worried about this kid. We're holding the course for now, but what should I think about if he doesn't start to look better soon? You should always be looking for any potential reversible causes, such as a pneumothorax, cardiac tamponade, or hemorrhage. This may mean getting bedside imaging like x-rays or ultrasounds. And for patients who are already on steroids, you want to make sure you're treating any underlying insufficiency. If you're maxed out on vasoactives, the kiddo isn't responding, or you're worried about the patient overall, you need to start thinking about intubation or ECMO. So really, you want to have that PICU fellow on board early to put your head together with them and coordinate the care for this patient. Honestly, though, if you're starting drips, they're probably heading up to the PICU anyways, so you're going to have a huge team with you. Wow, that, that was a lot. It makes a lot of sense now. But where can I go to refresh this? It is a lot. And since you're thinking about PICU, Victoria, you're going to be reviewing this frequently and knowing it from the back of your head. So I would say the surviving sepsis guidelines are a go-to reference that you can see for managing septic shock and are a great resource on this topic. I don't know about you guys, but sepsis and septic shock are making a lot more sense now. Lydia, want to bring this home and summarize what we talked about? Definitely. So if you see a kid whose history or exam points to infection and they have an abnormal white blood cell count, high respiratory rate, high heart rate, or fever, you want to start thinking about sepsis, which can sometimes become more serious and lead to shock. After ensuring that the kid is stable, meaning thinking about your ABCs, you want to get labs and imaging to find the source. And then finally, management often includes things like antibiotics, fluids, and sometimes pressors if your patient develops septic shock refractory to fluids. That's all for this episode. You can find additional information in the podcast description and our social media resources. Please rate and subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter at PediagogyPod. That's P-E-D-I-A-G-O-G-Y-P-O-D. Special thanks to Orlando Magana at OM Audio Productions for music composition and Dr. Su Ting Lee and Dr. Lena Vanderlis for mentorship.